namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu asambhutasa namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu asambhutasa namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu asambhutasa Buddhang namang sangang Before I was a, a nun, I used to, um, I, I moved around a lot. And when I moved, one of the things that I used to love to do was to put in a garden, to build a composting bin, and to bake some bread. And when I had done those things, I felt like, okay, I'm here, I'm landed. And so when I, when I got to the monastery as a Anagarika, I... Um, I had a, a strong sense that it would be good to build a compost bin. And so I, I set about um, with the task of building a composting uh, pile. And yeah, I was living in Amravati Monastery, and, and there was maybe 35 monks and nuns living there, and maybe 15 lay people living there, and then we would have visitors coming and going. So one of the things about composting, if you haven't had any experience with it, is, is that urine is actually a really powerful composting agent because it's got a lot of nitrogen in it, and it, it turns the leaves and the, um, the things that have a lot of carbon into rich, loamy soil. So I asked the whole community to collect their urine. And for some reason, which I don't really understand, they went along with this. <laughs> so there was a vat outside. It was like a trough that was like, you know, like five times bigger and deeper than a normal-sized bathtub. You know, it was like four feet high. And so in the morning, everyone would come with the buckets full of urine, and I would pour it into the vat, and I had this huge vat of urine. And I remember walking on the path one day, and Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Sujito were walking towards me, and they're like falling over with laughter. And I, what's going on? Why are you laughing? It's the urine nun. <laughs> so in England, we have a lot of we had a lot of trees, and the trees all lost their leaves in the in the in the winter time, in the autumn time, and so we had these huge piles of leaves. And then there was a big, huge field, and the grass would get cut, and so there was lots of grass cuttings and things like that. So I made a pile of compost that was like I don't know, ten feet wide, ten feet long, and ten feet high. I mean, it was just monster compost. But I used the urine to layer the different layers. And then uh, when it was finished, there was this lovely, rich, loamy soil that you came out of it. And that loamy soil then can be put on all the, the gardens and allow the flowers to grow. And it's just beautiful stuff. And I don't, I don't know if in L.A. you've got any composting, uh, citywide composting, but I know when I was in Berkeley, they did. You can put paper in it and bones in it and food that's cooked, you could put peel, any, anything. I mean, I mean, just amazing stuff that you can't normally compost in a home compost. You could put in the city compost because they would grind it all up and then they'd put it in a way so that it would get really hot. And so the stuff that we can't normally compost in our backyards, you could compost in these city composts because the heat was really strong and it could decompose all of this stuff. 
Well, this image of composting for me is a really important one because there's a lot in our lives that is worthy of compost, you know? That's, it's stuff, you know, like urine, most of us doesn't have, have an affectionate kind of warm sense of resonance when we think of urine. It doesn't have, you know, a, a heart-opening kind of lovely quality to it. But when you take urine and you put it in a compost with the right layering and then you oxygenate it, what comes out is, is stuff that's not only fragrant and beautiful to be around, but it's very, very nutritious and life-serving. Okay? So we can look at the various things in our lives which are worthy of composting, you know? The kinds of uh, anger that we experience or the the cravings for things that keep us locked in cycles of obsession or the sorrow or the sense of loneliness or the emptiness that we have. And all of the, the, the stuff, you know, most of the time it's like the same way we feel about with urine. It's like just flush it down the toilet, get it out of here. And, you know, the sooner we get it rid of it, then the happier that we're going to be. But with many of these things, it's not quite as simple as that. It's like, you know, there isn't a a flush that can take our loneliness or our sadness or our emptiness and have it just be gone. You know, we don't have magic wands where we can go voop, voop, and it's disappeared. It's like, you know, we can have stuff that arises, and there can be a really deep-seated wish uh, to, to change it for it not to be there. And my own experience of living as a, as a monastic and as a spiritual practitioner for many years before I was a monastic is, is, is that, you know, the stuff that we want to get rid of actually is, is important stuff to work with. And when we have a kind of sense of chemistry, of like the kind of layers of ingredients that's needed, then we can bring it together with other wholesome mind states and allow it to transform from something which is foul and unpleasant and where we have a deep-seated reaction towards and want to get rid of it to something which is in fact quite life-serving and life-affirming. And in my own life, that's been true with, with virtually everything that's been really difficult. You know, the stuff that's been horrendous. If you bring together the right attitudes, the right the right qualities of care and attention when you hold it in the right container so that it can heat up, cook up, and then transform. What comes as a result for me in many situations is a, is a heart and a body and a mind that has more capacity, that has more sensitivity, more receptivity, and more ability to tune into what is needed um, both for myself and for others and just show up. So just in the same way with compost, you know, like this huge vat of urine that these two monks were like in hysterics about was actually turned this pile of leaves into something that was actually really wonderful, rich, fertile soil for the garden. Yeah. So the principle of composting is not just for people who like to garden. It's actually something that we can use in our spiritual practice. And what's helpful is to understand the kind of basic parameters of what's needed. So in my own life, you know, the parameters that I've used, which I've found really helpful to support the, the, the composting process, is taking refuge 
keeping precepts, cultivating a heart of generosity and understanding the importance of forgiveness and loving kindness. So let's just talk about some of these things and then see how that works and see how that fits for you. So when we're talking about the refuges, you know, one of the things that I love about the refuges is that it seems to me it's just very uh, ironic that on one hand, taking refuges is a way to self-identify as being a Buddhist. So in a traditional context, taking refuge is the delineation of of being or becoming or self-identifying as a Buddhist, okay? But when you look at it in another way, which for me is just as valid, when you look at the refuge of the Buddha as the refuge of the awakened mind, when you look at that as not being something that Buddhists have a monopoly on, then taking refuge in the Buddha is actually an inclusive act that all sentient beings, all human beings, have within them this awakened nature as something which is innate. It's not limited to Buddhists. When we take refuge in the Dhamma in a traditional and very classical way, that's taking refuge in the teachings that the Buddha offered. And one of the things that's really quite wonderful and remarkable about being in the Buddhist path is that the teachings are vast and very comprehensive and relate to and speak to many, many, many different components of our life. And so people who are interested in looking at the Buddha's words and reading them directly and and beginning to sense or work with them so that they become something that is familiar, you get a, a, like, all of a sudden, you're in a treasure trove that's just unbelievable. Just, it's a vast uh, resource. So taking refuge in the Dhamma on one hand is to take refuge in the legacy of what the Buddha offered. And on another hand, taking refuge in the, in the Dhamma is taking refuge in the, in the truth of how things are, the truth of the pervasive nature of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth that suffering can end when we are able to allow our attention to come into right relationship, and the truth that there's a path that leads to the end of suffering. Okay, And even though these truths are again a framework that is often referred to as Buddhist, you know, the truth of suffering, I'm afraid nobody has a monopoly on. You know, this is absolutely universal truth. And yet the willingness and the interest to engage in an inquiry that allows us to see where the real cause of that suffering is and to contemplate in a way to allow it to end is one of the marks of a person who's committed to waking up. So we have the refuge of the Buddha, which has two components, or two levels of looking at it. We have the refuge of the Dhamma, which has two levels of looking at it. And we have the refuge of the Sangha, which has two levels of looking at it. And on one level, taking refuge in the Sangha is taking refuge in those people who have practiced to the level where they are no longer confused by greed, they're no longer knocked out of balance by anger, and they don't experience ignorance or confusion about what's actually happening, okay? 
they have direct, clear sight into what's really going on. When we look at it in a, a larger perspective, taking refuge in the Sangha is in our collective aspiration to wake up out of patterns that are no longer serving. They're no longer helpful for us and they're no longer helpful for each other or for the world. And we can count on that or learn to cultivate relationships with other people who are interested in being part of this journey so that we don't have to have the sense that we're in this all by ourselves, that we have to figure it out all on our own, that there isn't anybody that we can talk to or there isn't anybody that we can share our experience with. Because look around, look how many people are here tonight, you know? There's a lot of people who are here tonight. And as a resource, the community is a phenomenal resource. So one of the blessings of a place like Against the Stream is is that it has venues where there are regular opportunities for people to meet and to discuss the Dhamma, to practice together, and to share with each other about these very topics so that you get a sense of an extended network and community of people. And, you know, I, I travel and I teach in different places and there are punks everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, if you're not in Santa Monica and you go to Boston, there's punks in Boston and there's punks in New York and there's punks in San Francisco and there are some in Oakland and they're important, they're all over the place. So you have a sense of a community of people who've got a similar values and interest in waking up who are not only just located in one particular place. And that's a huge resource. So refuge is a safety, it's a place of sanctuary. It's a, it's a place of something that you can trust, that you can rely on. It's not something that's gonna change just when the weather changes. It's not something that's just going to be here one second and be gone the next second in the way that in much of life we're dealing with things which are very much subject to the laws of, of change and impermanence. You know? So when we're looking at wanting to set up a composting system, then understanding refuge as part of a value system helps create the right relationship with the stuff that's arising that mostly, you know, our response is yuck. You know, get this out of here. You know, I don't want this smelly stuff around. It stinks. You know? When we're tethered to the awakened mind, when we're tethered to the truth of the way things are and the teachings of the Buddha, when we're tethered to a collective aspiration to wake up, we have with us a huge resource that's much bigger than our own personal limitations that we normally associate with. It's very powerful. Very powerful. So another way of holding a container that supports composting is affirming and keeping the precepts. And so the five basic precepts are to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from speech which is incorrect or uh, untrue or harsh or slanderous or useless, 
and to refrain from drugs and drink and any kind of substances or behaviors which are inducing addictive patterning. So when we look at the first precept of refraining from killing, you know, I don't know how many people really genuinely have had to deal with the kind of instinct to want to kill another person. I have been with people right after they have killed somebody. And it's no joke what happens to somebody when they've done that. You know, it's very powerful. And so taking that precept to refrain from taking the life of another human being or another living being is a really important commitment to make that no matter how furious we get, no matter how agitated we get, no matter how upset we get, that's just not a boundary to go, to cross. Yeah. But I know for most of us, on much of the time, that's not the kind of stuff we're dealing with. I know for most of us, much of the time, what we're dealing with is an incessant way in which we're harming ourselves. The way that we criticize and judge and condemn and slander and trash and berate and harass and abandon ourselves. You know? And, you know, there are lawyers in this audience. I've spoken to several of them already this evening. If anyone did to us what we did to ourselves, we would be absolutely able to sue for liable. It's just like nonsense. You know? It's total bullshit. And it goes on like wallpaper. We don't notice it. We don't see it. We think that it's the truth. We follow it. And it absolutely has to stop. It absolutely has got to stop. This kind of bullshit serves no one. So with this kind of bullshit, the way to compost it is to be incredibly vigilant about it arising and to not believe it to not follow it, to not pay energy to it, not give attention to it, to notice that it's there and not follow it. And it is critical that every single one of us makes an absolute firm commitment to stop following this stuff. It serves no one. The only usefulness this stuff has is by developing the vigilance to watch it arising. That's it. This kind of bullshit is really toxic. And with this kind of stuff, you've got to be really careful with what you do with it. Because if you're not really careful, it can cause a sepsis throughout your whole system. The second precept, refraining from taking what's not offered, you know, so you come into the center, you don't jack the Buddha or the bowl, you know, you leave the stuff alone, the cushions go back into the closet, you know, you leave the shoes that are not yours, you take only your shoes, it's like, that's the deal, yeah? And I don't think people here are going to have a problem with that deal. 
But I think what happens for many of us is, is that it's not just that we're stealing other people's stuff, but we're hanging out with this expectation of if only what's not happening would arrive. If only I would feel energetic or bright or clear or loving or peaceful when I feel sad or tired or lonely or confused. And so we sit waiting for what isn't offered, thinking that if we sit here waiting in the right way, it's going to show up. And check it out. Does it? So as a reflection on this mind state that is hanging out, waiting for what isn't here, it's a really useful way of looking at that habit tendency. The third precept to refrain from sexual misconduct is really, really important because you can see the kind of absolute pandemonium and chaos that happens in your own life and other people's lives when that isn't, that isn't regarded and protected and taken care of. And so there needs to be, or it's incredibly useful to take stock of one's own sexual practices and behaviors and the kinds of relationships one gets into not to reinforce the sense of shaming and blaming and criticizing and condemning and trashing oneself, not to go there, but as a way of holding a light as to what's actually happening and what are the results. How does it leave me feeling? How does it leave the people I'm engaged with feeling, sexually partnering with? How does it leave them feeling? Honestly, you know, with clarity, with tenderness, with care. Because there needs to be an interest of reducing suffering for oneself and to reduce the suffering coefficient in the world, to make one's suffering footprint less. You know, there's enough suffering in the world, we don't need to add any more to it. So what does it look like to have an honest inquiry about one's own sexual practices and behaviors with care and attention and interest and to see if, if there's room for more care, for more respect, for more kindness for yourself and for others. And opening this field up, it isn't only about our relationship with our sexuality, but it's about the way that we work with our whole sensual experiences as a way of pulling us out of the present moment. Our craving to see things or to hear things or to feel things or to taste things or to have fancy experiences or really exotic adventures because somehow the present moment is intolerable. And so there's this idea that if we can have delicious dinner or a wonderful movie or, in a, you know, a an extreme experience with sport, then we're going to be okay. And that okay might last for a very short period of time. And then it changes, and we're left with those same feelings again. So in order to be able to take, make good use of those uncomfortable feelings, we have to have a, a commitment 
to watch what's happening to our behavior and see the result. There's speech. Now, in punk land, we get a special dispensation because we're allowed to curse. Because in punk land, cursing is not harsh speech, it's just exclamatory speech. <laughs> but saying things which are not true is a different story. When you say something that's not true, then what happens is that you create a whole ripple effect of dishonesty. And one of the things that was really interesting for me uh, about Ajahn Chah's great meditation master is that he said Any, a, a murderer is easier to train than a thief. Because a murderer often is a murderer from acts of passion which are really easier to watch and observe and work with than a whole mindset that is determined and built upon deceit and dishonesty. And you can see, you know, when you start with a little bit of dishonesty, it increases, it grows, it expands, and then you have to justify it, which takes more dishonesty. And before you know it, it's like tar baby. Everything is stuck, you know? So honesty is really critical in composting the stuff that we find unpleasant. Noticing what's happening, noticing our reaction to what's happening, noticing the results of our behaviors around what we've done. When we don't have the capacity to see clearly, we don't have any ability to see the cause and effect of what our actions have resulted in. There's a whole smear campaign. We're trying to make it okay. Because underneath, we feel terrible. But we can't experience the terrible because we don't know how to work with the terrible. So we cover it over with this sense that everything's okay. So that's another form of bullshit. And that form of bullshit doesn't serve us. So the form of bullshit that is in the form of dishonesty and requires the, uh, the illumination of clarity to see the impact of it and the result. And to begin to get a sense that that is not in any way life-serving. So that's dishonest speech. Frivolous speech is really curious because it's often like kind of a social norm, you know, of the way that we're used to speaking. How are you? I'm fine. You know, no register of the fact that I'm actually in chronic pain or I'm exhausted or that I've actually just been crying or, you know, that I feel heartbroken, I'm fine. And so we have this social convention that it's not socially acceptable to actually touch into what's going on and to speak about it in an honest way. And so that creates a, a very interesting um, um, tension between the interest to move towards honesty and a cultural trend that says that that's unacceptable and how to navigate the pressure of that in a way that actually feels like it's something that we can manage 
and that's actually something that is supportive. And that's another reason why it's really helpful to have communities like this that meet regularly, because you can support each other with those kinds of inquiries and support each other by creating environments where you're dropping into really genuine, authentic, honest communication. What does that look like? The last precept of refraining from drugs and drink, which cause confusion or carelessness, you know, I have so much respect for people who are in programs of recovery and uh, have made an effort to get clean and sober and are supporting others to do the same. Because in my, from what I can see, unless there's an effort to do that, you don't have the container to do the work, to compost the stuff that's really painful and difficult into something that is life-affirming and useful. That is needed as a kind of basis in order to do this work. And I'm delighted, absolutely delighted, that Noah has just written this book and that there are refuge and recovery centers that are opening up and there's a refuge and recovery house that's available for people to do this work in, because it's an incredibly important work. And this is a brilliant book, so I recommend it. Um, in terms of our own dialing in to the whole world of addiction, you know, for me, substances were not an issue for me, but I think if any of us are really honest and we look carefully, we can see that even if substances is not something that pulls our attention, we might find other things that actually are things where we get obsessed with and we have not uh, real willful control over being able to stop those behaviors. So watching what happens with our relationship with food, watching what happens in our relationship with our sexuality and with relationships, watching what happens to shopping or to internet or to... I mean, there's a whole myriad of ways, there's a gazillion different ways in which our, our attention can be consumed by behaviors which turn into addictive patterning. And so when we look at this fifth precept, not only as a clarity around substances, but around patterns which are obsessive or addictive, then for many of us, this is a place where we have inquiry and opportunities to do some work. So Refuges and Precepts creates a holding ground and a container. And that container allows us then to be able to reflect on some of the things that are arising and bring forward some of the right attitudes that are like the layers of the compost so that we can take stuff which is arising in its unpleasant form and turn it into something which is much more useful. You know, for me, forever, I've been dealing with issues around anger. I'm the kind of person that suppresses it. And for a long, long, long time, even to have any sense whatsoever that anger was arising in my system was like, you know, a big deal. 
because I would suppress it before I had any inclination that it was arising. And yet, to allow this energy into awareness is necessary if it's going to be transformed. So for suppressive types like me, we have to go through a process of giving ourselves permission to allow it into awareness. The people who tend to dump, then the opposite is needed of learning how to hold and contain the energy. And when I was living at Amravati, I was the work nun, and Amravati had a workshop that was about the size of this building. It was huge. And England is cold, like, all the time. And one of the monks had built this uh, wood-burning stove, which was a monster. It was just fabulous. And it had a, um, a, a screw-top lid that you could lift up, and it was big enough that you could pour a whole big, huge trash can of stuff in. And it was designed so that when we had, you know, bits and pieces of burnable things, we could just burn them in the wood-burning stove. And the stove was like five feet tall, so that we could put logs in it that were this wide, that were five feet long, and just throw them in there. So when I was working in the workshop, because the place was damp and cold and miserable, I kept the burnable stuff in one bin and had a stash of logs, and I would save the turpentine. Do you call it turps in this country, or paint thinner? Paint thinner. I'd save the paint thinner from the brushes, um, so that I would pour the, the, the burnable stuff in the trash can into the stove. I'd put a big, huge log that was this wide and five feet tall in, and I'd douse it with the paint thinner. I'd throw in a match, and it would just... <laughs> there would be an inferno in this thing, and the stove would shake, and it wouldn't take very long, and the metal would turn red hot but it was strong enough that it could hold the heat. So even though I was a bit of a maniac, it could handle it. So when we've got anger and our tendency is to dump, then this image is really useful. We need to create a container that can hold the heat. And when we understand how to hold the heat and to work with it from our body and to understand our... Uh, reactive mechanisms, then we know when we are getting close to being in a situation where we're in danger or not of harming ourselves or harming somebody else. And when we are getting close to that, we get the hell out of Dodge. We go into a place where we can do what we need to do and have no risk of hurting ourselves or hurting somebody else. And so in that situation, it's really useful to know when, when holding and tightening around something is really important. So if that's your tendency with anger, just to dump it and to discharge it, and you notice that there's an arising of this stuff, before you engage in some kind of behavior that's harmful, then there needs to be the discernment to watch that, and to do what you need to do to take yourself out of the situation that you're not so reactive. Or if you are going to continue to be reactive, where you're reacting in a place like you can throw rocks and kick garbage cans and there's not going to be a lot of damage. Yeah. And learning that trigger mechanism 
is really an important self-awareness learning that we need to do in order to take this energy which is incredibly strong and compost it into something which is directed towards what is life-affirming. Now, for many of us, it's a very interesting inquiry. What need of mine is not getting met? As a question as to underneath, why am I so furious? Why am I so angry? What is this about? And so when we focus on what need is not getting met, then we're in a position to self-advocate for our need rather than discharge our anger. Advocating for our need is life-affirming. Discharging our anger often is destructive. So there's another way in which we can be involved in stuff which is really um, challenging to process. It's, a, it's another form of bullshit. And that form of bullshit is when we latch on to an identity and then use that identity in lieu of being present with what's going on and doing our work. Now, I have to admit that when I came back from England and I was living in, here in the United States, I have had to do my own inquiry around this because I hadn't really noticed the way in which I had used the identity of being a nun as a way to separate myself away from people in order not to feel certain things. And the result of that was a sense of sadness and loneliness and a sense of emptiness and a hunger to connect. But the more that I was grasping for connection without actually looking at what I had done to create the conditions that gave rise to the loneliness and the emptiness, the more that I was in a cycle that I couldn't actually resolve. So that kind of bullshit, where we hold on to an identity and use it to pull ourselves away and not attend to the present moment, is remedied by the willingness to see what's going on. And the commitment to try and rectify it. Now, when I see somebody else doing that, it's really challenging because I can't say, you know, this is bullshit. I have to engage in a way where I can speak about what it is that I'm observing and the impact that it's having on me, but I can't label it in a label that, that is so judgmental, even if that is what I'm experiencing. So when I was traveling, uh, I was in Boulder not that long ago, and when I was in Boulder, there were several people who came up to me and they were telling me stories of things that had happened to them that were, you know, the sense of Boulder is a very cool, very spiritual town. 
And so people move there because they want to be in a very cool, very spiritual town. But they can use the identity of being cool and being spiritual as a way of being nasty, <laughs> of being mean, of being selfish, of being checked out, of being numb, of being like absolutely absent in a life, life and death situation. And they're so cool that they can't be present for it. And, you know, it, it's really hard when these things are happening around to navigate them in a way that feels congruent with one's own values. But the way to find how to navigate the outside is to do the work where we see how this is happening on the inside. And when we understand how to work with that kind of bullshit in ourselves, then that gives us more capacity to be present for when that's arising for somebody else. So, I want to pause here and open up the topic for questions and comments and answers. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.